Right, good morning, everybody. Wonderful to see you. Um, I don't know about you, but God's really been moving in my heart as we've worshipped this morning. Just sense his presence powerfully at work amongst us. And it's been such a brilliant meeting so far. Um, So let's hope that my sermon doesn't let the rest of the side down. Um, I'm preaching from Psalm 69. Did anyone have 69? Jeff knew, Jeff knew. I told him, I told him before. Shall we pray? Let's pray as we come to read from God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your movement amongst us this morning, Lord God. Would you continue to speak to our hearts, Lord God? Would you challenge us? Would you inspire us? Would you lift our eyes to gaze upon Jesus Christ that we might worship him and give him all the glory as we read this psalm and as I speak, Lord God? I just pray you would move mightily in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been looking at the Psalms over the past couple of weeks, Songs of the Summer, if you want to give the sermon series a title. And Jason and Di, over the last two weeks, preached on two Psalms of David, Psalms written in the middle of a crisis. But in the crisis, in the darkness, in the difficult place, David the Psalmist finds reasons to worship, reasons to praise. And um, some wonderful, wonderful verses we've read over the past couple of weeks. In Psalm 63, we read this. Your loving kindness, God, is better than life itself. What a wonderful truth that we believe. Psalm 27, uh, Dio, last week. One thing I ask that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Wonderful, wonderful truths that we've looked at, looked at over these three weeks. Well, this morning I'm preaching from Psalm 69, which is another psalm written by David. And it's another psalm written in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of difficulty and trial. And it's another psalm where David finds time to worship and praise God in heaven. But it's also a psalm that makes Christians squirm in their seats just a little bit. Because in this psalm, David prays against his enemies. Some of the verses that I'm about to read will make you squirm in your seats. It's called an imprecatory psalm, a psalm where David calls down imprecations upon his enemies. And hopefully that'll make sense to you when we get there. And so one of the big questions I'm going to answer this morning is, how do we read psalms like this today as Christians? When David gets all angry in his prayers, how are we to read that as Christians today? And the other thing I hope we'll see is, why do I think this is the, one of the most powerful and beautiful psalms in all 150 psalms. I really think this psalm is going to speak to us today while it also makes us squirm just a little bit as Christians. So let's read Psalm 69 together. The words will appear on the screen behind me. Um, Hopefully you can read that. Um, Let's read Psalm 69. To the choir master, according to the lilies of David. Save me, O God, For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head 
are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonour through me, O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonour has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonour. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. And let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. I wonder how many of you were squirming during verses 22 to 28 as I read those verses. I want to do three things from that psalm this morning. Firstly, I want to walk you through the journey of emotions that David goes on as he writes that psalm, as he sings that psalm, as he speaks to God. So we're going to walk through all the emotions that David goes through. Then secondly, I'm going to focus on that tricky section, verses 22 to 28. How does the New Testament deal with those verses? How are we to read those verses as Christians? 
And finally, my third point is my favorite this morning. My th- the third thing I'm going to do this morning is unpack how this psalm is really and gloriously all about Christ, our suffering saviour. So let's um, get started by walking through this magnificent psalm. So verses one to three, this psalm begins in a place of complete desperation. David is crying out to God, save me, O God, he cries. I'm drowning, waters have come up to my neck. I'm sinking, there's no foothold, there's nowhere for me to stand. I'm I'm sinking, I'm drowning, my strength is failing, writes David. I'm weary, my eyes grow dim with waiting for God to do something. David is in a desperate situation at the beginning of this psalm. He's desperate for God to move. I wonder whether you've ever felt as desperate, helpless and hurting as David in this psalm. Maybe you've come today and that's how you're feeling. You're desperate for God to move. You feel hopeless. You feel like you're drowning. You feel like you're sinking with life. Maybe, Maybe the energy bills crisis is starting to impact you and you feel like you're drowning financially. And if that is you, please do speak to us. We want to help you with a church. We don't want anyone to feel like they're drowning because of the financial pressure. But maybe that's something that's in your life that's making you feel like you're suffering and drowning. Or maybe there's something else going on in your life and you feel desperate you feel like everything's overwhelming you floods flood over you if that's you I believe there's comfort and help from God for you this morning do you know the Bible never belittles suffering and desperation it's not like when someone goes aha there's suffering in the world therefore God doesn't exist the Bible goes oh no didn't think of that God goes oh no I didn't think of that no the Bible's full of people who have gone through suffering, full of people who have struggled in in desperate, desperate moments. And God speaks into those moments. He wants to draw alongside us in those moments and comfort us and speak truths to us. So the Bible never belittles suffering and desperation. I believe God wants to speak to you today if you're feeling like that. In verses four to five, David explains precisely why he's so desperate. Those who hate me are more numerous than the hairs on my head. Presumably he had a full head of hair. I hope he wasn't bald man writing that. But presumably he had a full head of hair and he had numerous enemies and they hated him without cause. There wasn't a good reason for them to hate David. He was hated without cause. The mighty enemies that he's facing are attacking him with lies, he writes in those verses. And he says in verse 5, God, you know that I've done wrong, but I'm not suffering for those things. I'm not suffering for the sin. that David said, I'm not perfect. I know I've messed up on occasion, but I know I'm not suffering for those things. These enemies, these haters hate me without cause for no good reason. It's not because of my sin that they hate me. It's actually, as we go through the psalm, because of his righteousness and his zeal for God. That's why he's hated. That's why he's afflicted. That's why he has enemies. So they don't hate him for a good reason. They hate him for no good reason at all. And yet in the midst of this bleakness, surrounded by enemies, what is David's greatest concern? We'll have a look at verses 6 to 8. David prays for others who hope in God. 
He cares about the others who are hoping in God. Don't let the other believers suffer shame because of me, he prays in verse 6. Don't let people seeking after God suffer from dishonour because of me, he prays. Isn't that extraordinary prayer? He has all these people who hate him, more enemies than hairs on his head, and yet his heart and his prayer is for the other people who are hoping in God, other believers. It's a good prayer. It's a good prayer for us to Use as an example to help us as Christians. Lord, even as I'm going through this situation, even as people hate me, even as I struggle on, I pray for the church. I pray for others who hope in you. I pray for other believers. May my actions never bring shame to them, Lord God. Keep them from shame. Keep them from dishonour. Even if my enemies do evil, may my deeds and my words always be good because I want to bring honour to the people of God. I don't want dishonour and shame to fall upon other believers. I wonder whether you have such a heart for the church and for other believers that when you go through suffering, your prayers are still for the other. Your prayers and concerns and cares are still for others in the church. doesn't mean it's, of course, it's right and good to pray for yourself. But I wonder whether you go, when you go through these trials and crisis in your life, are you praying for the church and hoping that the church would have honour and glory from Christ? In verses 9 to 12, David explains it's because of his zeal for God and his zeal for God's people that David suffers. Verse 9, zeal for God's house consumes him. He loves, he's zealous for, he's passionate about God's house. And that's what's led him to this place of people hating him. David says reproach, which just means disapproval or criticism or insult, reproach aimed at God has actually fallen upon David. So the people who want to criticise and slag off God have aimed their insults at David and as they slagged him off. I wonder whether you've ever been in that place as a Christian, people who don't like God, don't want him to exist or hate something about the Christian God and they, they mock you in place of mocking God as a Christian. David says he's fasted in verse 10. And as he's fasting, seeking after God, reproach has fallen upon him. David says he's humbled himself before God in sackcloth. And as he's humbled himself in sackcloth, he's been made a mockery of. He's become a laughable byword. Basically, people are going, hey, you're such a David. Whenever anyone shows any kind of religious zeal, they go, oh, you're like David. And what they're doing is they're mocking David. David's this laughable person who so loves God and God's house that let's make a mockery of him. That's what's going on. They talk about David in the gates and the drunkards, the people in the pubs, write songs mocking David because he loves God. Because he's passionate for God's house. Because his zeal for God's house has consumed him. That's why they're mocking him. In other words, David is suffering for doing good. David is suffering for doing good. It's not his sin that's caused him to suffer. It's his love for God that's caused him to suffer. And two things occur to me from these verses at this point. Many of us will suffer mockery for our faith. If we boldly, zealously live and speak out our Christian faith, you will face moments where people in our society will mock you. Sometimes it will be done in kind of a friendly, banterous way. 
But often, even that friendly banter will come from a real heart of mocking you. For, you believe in Jesus? Are you crazy? You believe in God? How can you possibly do that? We, we live in a society where if you are genuinely living out your faith, you will be mocked, potentially behind your back. But I've been mocked to my face on, on quite a few occasions. <laughs> Thank you, Francis. Um, so that's the first thing that occurs to us. Many of us will be in this situation like David. And we praise God, as, as Francis demonstrated, we praise God for those moments because we're enduring suffering for Christ, whom we love. The second thing that occurs to me at this point is you may already be able to see Christ in this psalm. As we're talking about someone suffering for doing good, the Christian mind says, I know someone who really did suffer for doing good. Jesus Christ, my Lord and Saviour. Christ is the ultimate one who suffers for doing good. For he died on the cross as a substitute in our place. He died despite being completely righteous. So as soon as in the Psalms or anywhere else in Scripture we start to see someone suffering for doing good, we immediately think of our saviour, Jesus Christ, the one who suffered on the cross despite being righteous in everything he ever did. I'm jumping ahead to my third point already, so I'll save that for a second. So David is desperate. He's hated. He's suffering because he loves God and is zealous for God's people. Observe then the stunning faith of verses 13 to 18. The stunning faith of verses 13 to 18. Second half of verse 13, David writes this. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. That's extraordinary faith for this man who's surrounded by enemies and being mocked for his love for God. He, he comes up with this beautiful phrase that's full of faith. And there are three elements of that phrase that express such glorious faith. Firstly, he trusts in God's timing. At an acceptable time, O oh God, he prays. He doesn't mean an acceptable time to me. When I decide the time is right, my acceptable No, he's saying your timing, O oh God, your acceptable moment. I know you're going to move and save me. Isn't that good, wonderful faith? And so often that's what we need to do when we go through trials and suffering. We need to say at an acceptable time to you, O oh God, will you move and bring me out of this situation. And that might be immediately God miraculously answers that prayer that might be today it might be tomorrow it might be in a month's time it might be when you die and you go to be with Jesus in paradise or it might be when Jesus returns in glory to the new heavens and the new earth we say at an acceptable time because God is infinitely wise and infinitely loving so whatever trials we go through we say at an acceptable time God will you show me your saving faithfulness in the abundance of your steadfast love he trusts in God's timing the second way he expresses faith is his faith is in the character of God. He speaks of the abundant, steadfast love of God in that verse. He speaks of the faithfulness of God that saves, the saving faithfulness of God. His faith in God isn't unfounded. It's not like, I don't know anything about God, but I'm kind of hoping he's going to sort me out and help me out here. No, that's not where he, he says. I can be confident that God will save me because he's faithful and he's always been faithful throughout my entire life. And since God is faithful, I can be confident that at the acceptable time, he will move mightily. 
David says, I can be assured that God loves me because his steadfast love is abundant. That's part of who he is, his abundant, steadfast love. So I, can not, I, don't, I don't think God loves me because I'm a great person. No, I can be confident that God loves me and has steadfast love for me because of who he is, because of his faithfulness, because of his abundant, steadfast love. I want to challenge some thought patterns in here this morning. I think sometimes when we think about ourselves, we start with ourselves. Well, who am I? I'm, I'm not really that great a person. And that means God probably doesn't think very much of me. And that means I'm probably trapped forever in my situation, in my pain and my struggle and my suffering. That's one thought pattern where you start with yourself and then you work through based on who you are, how you think God will treat you. Well, that's, that's not what we need to do. This is the thought pattern we need to have. We need to reverse that and start with God. He's steadfast in love and he's faithful forever. He has saving faithfulness. And if that is who he is, He's probably going to be faithful to me, to rescue me, to save me out of my current crisis and difficulty. And if that's who he is, if he's a God of steadfast love, then, well, maybe he loves me with that steadfast love. Maybe I am lovable. Maybe I am okay because this is how God thinks of me. He's got steadfast love. And therefore, from his steadfast love, he looks down upon me with love and faithfulness all the days of my life. Do you see, sometimes we get stuck in these negative thought patterns where we start with ourselves. But if we think about the character of God and meditate on the character of God, it transforms the way we think about ourselves. The third element of faith that I love about David's, this moment in this psalm, is He has a firm conviction that God will save, redeem, ransom him. He uses all those um, words in those few verses. But not only that God will save him, but also that God will draw near to him and answer him. David has faith not just to be saved, but also that he would be restored into relationship with God. Have you ever prayed to God, draw near to my soul? Have you ever known the closeness of God? Your soul, your very very most innermost being, that's what the soul is. And David's, David's asking God to draw near to his soul. We can have faith, not only that God saves, but also that he draws near to enter into a close relationship with all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I love verses 13 to 18. Resolute faith in the midst of dire circumstances, all grounded in the steadfast love, faithfulness and mercy of God. Psalm 69 verses 13 to 18. Those are the kind of verses to grab hold of, I think, in our walks with God. In verses 19 to 21, David goes back to describing his suffering. So he's, he's switching. He's not removing himself for his situation. He still knows he's going through the suffering. He still knows that he has people who hate him. So he's, he's showing faith, but he's being honest about the things that he's going through. And those verses contain greater detail about some of the ways in which David is suffering. And then in verses 22 to 28, we have these, this most controversial part of the psalm where David prays for his enemies to suffer the wrath and punishment of God. He doesn't slur his words or pull his punches in that section of the psalm, does he? Add to them punishment upon punishment, he prays. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, David prays. I'll leave that because I'm coming to that for my second point. So we just have to leave that hanging for a second. Why does David pray those things? 
Because finally, in verse 29 to the end of the psalm, to verse 36, David ends with praise. He sings to God. He magnifies God. He thanks God for who he is and what he's done. He celebrates that God hears the prayers of the needy. And even in verse 34, he invites all of creation to worship God. He's saying, I'm praising God, but I want the seas to worship God as well. Everything that moves in the seas to bring God the glory that he is worthy of. And so it it goes into a dark place in verses 22 to 28, but it ends in this glorious moment of worship and praise. Now, there's lots in that psalm. Hopefully you've all found a nugget already to take away from the psalm with you. But there are three things I just want to emphasize from what I've just showed you as we've journeyed through that psalm. The first is this, never be afraid of expressing emotion to God. David, a man after God's own heart, expresses despair, fear, anger, desperation, praise and trust all in one psalm. Never be afraid. In your prayer life, when you come on a Sunday, when you're worshipping God, never be afraid of expressing your emotion to God. David is an example to us in this. The second thing I want to emphasise is that we ought never to lose faith. In the midst of crisis, David remains full of faith and trust in God. And that faith is well placed because God is abundant in steadfast love and has saving faithfulness. So if you're struggling this morning, if you're going through a crisis, keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. Never lose faith. Never be afraid of expressing emotion and never lose faith. And thirdly, always come back to a place of worship. David pleads with God. He explains his trials, but he ends with praise. And we are, aren't we, a people of praise. We make it. Let's make it not just a weekly discipline when we come to church together to sing the praises of God. Let's make it a daily discipline in our lives to sing praises to God, to speak prayers of praise to our awesome, awesome God. Even and especially when we're going through those dark and difficult times. Tell God how you're feeling. Explain to him the difficulties you're suffering. But always come back to that place of praise. It will warm your soul and God will meet you as we worship him. It's just a wonderful gift. Worship is a gift that God has given to us. So always come back to the place of worship and the place of praise. Never be afraid of emotion. Never lose faith. Always come back to worship. Now then, what should we do with verses 22 to 28? Now, I don't want to address these verses by saying, here's what Duncan thinks. That's not what I, I don't want to stand up here and go, this is Duncan's approach to these verses. No, rather what I want to do is, how does the New Testament use Psalm 69? How does the Apostle Paul quote Psalm 69? Because then we know we've got a biblical answer from the Holy Spirit rather than nonsense from Duncan. So... The great thing, the amazing thing really, is that those verses, Psalm 69, verses uh, 22 to 23, are quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 11 and read you how Paul quotes these verses. So Romans 11, verses 7 to 10. Um, I have got a slide with this on as well, Johnny, I think. Oh yeah, thank you. Sorry, already up. My bad. Uh, So Romans 11, um, verses 7 to 10, this is what Paul writes. 
Oh, so Paul, sorry, Paul is describing the Israelite people and how some Jews believed in God, but many Jews have failed to accept Christ as Messiah. And so they, they haven't trusted God with their lives. And so he's trying to make sense of that. Why is it that so many Israelites haven't truly received salvation? And this is what he says. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Do you see he quotes Psalm 69 verses in there? Let their table become a snare and trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. It's taken out of Psalm 69. So Paul in those verses doesn't use verses 22 to 28 as example prayers that Christians should also pray. He doesn't think that David in those verses is out for petty revenge. And we, when we have people who hate us or do nasty things to us, go, oh, I need to open up Psalm 69 and read these verses as a prayer over that person. That's not how Paul uses those verses. He doesn't use those verses as petty revenge. Rather, Paul believes David is speaking prophetically in Psalm 69. And it's appropriate for David to speak about Israelites in this way, because David is God's anointed king in Israel. And since David is God's anointed king in Israel, if you're an Israelite and you're hating David, you are hating God's anointed. You are, you're actually hating God. You're hating God's choice for who should be king in Israel. And therefore, David speaks prophetically. He says, he says this is the judgment that will befall all who reject God's anointed king. Everyone who forsakes God by rejecting God's king will suffer this kind of retribution, punishment upon punishment. They will be blotted out from the land of the living. They will not enter into the congregation of the righteous. David is speaking as the anointed king there against his enemies, against enemies of God in those verses. So as Christians, that's exactly how we should read those verses. We shouldn't read them as examples to pray in our situation, but rather we should say this is David speaking a reminder, a prophetic reminder that anyone who rejects God ends up in this place of God's judgment and God's wrath. Now, just to emphasise that Paul agrees with this idea, have a look at Romans 12, verses 14 to 21. So this is where Paul is going with his argument. Romans 12, verses 14 to 21. Let me read you these verses, just a chapter later in Romans. Bless those who persecute you, writes Paul. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
what Paul teaches in Romans is that vengeance belongs to God. And so when people do us wrong, when people hate us or mock us without cause or because we're zealous for God, as Christians, we say with Paul, I do not need to take revenge. I can forgive. I can let go because I know that God will bring justice at an acceptable time. I know that when the time is right, God will be just and God will do what is right. And that means when we read or even sing uncomfortable verses in the Psalms, like in Psalm 69, we don't pray them as personal prayers against the people we don't like very much. We read them as prophetic reminders that all who oppose God's anointed king will suffer penalty for that decision. Now, in 1000 BC, when Psalm 69 was written, David was God's king in Israel. But we know that the true anointed king, the Messiah, that word Messiah, that's what it means, anointed king, Messiah, is Jesus Christ. And this is the truth that you need to hear if you're not a Christian. If you do not follow Christ, the curses of Psalm 69 will fall upon you. You have opposed, you have rejected God's anointed King Jesus and therefore God's indignation will fall upon you. Your camp will be a desolation. You will be blotted out of the book of the living. But God waits, God waits, hoping that you would repent, hoping that you would believe in Christ and receive forgiveness and enter into the kingdom of Christ. And that is my plea to you if you aren't a Christian. Repent. Turn from sin and believe in Christ. He died for you on the cross. He is a mighty and loving saviour and king. And I urge you with everything in me, believe in him, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Because what will befall you if you don't is a dreadful and terrible thing described in these verses in Psalm 69. I'm able to finish with one third final and glorious, glorious point. This psalm, Psalm 69, is really all about Christ. It is a little bit about David, but it's really about Jesus, the Messiah. This psalm is quoted in John's Gospel on three occasions. It's amazing, isn't it, that a psalm that we think is quite controversial was actually taken up by the gospel writer John and he, he, he puts in multiple references and quotes to this psalm throughout his gospel. And I want to take you to those three places and see how this psalm speaks to us of Jesus Christ. So firstly, Psalm 69 verse 9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. And that verse is quoted in John chapter 2. Jesus goes into the temple and the temple was meant to be a house of prayer. It was meant to be a place of worship where God gets all the glory. But when Jesus goes in there, what does he see? He sees people selling oxen and sheep, changing money, making profit. What Jesus sees is not a place of prayer, it's a place of profit. It's not a house of worship, it's a house of trade. And so Jesus is in his righteousness angry at what is going on in the temple he overturns the tables he gets a whip and he drives people out of the temple saying how have you turned this place into this this is about money about profit about greed and it's supposed to be about prayer and worship and as he acts in that way as he shows righteous anger in the temple the disciples watch on and they remember psalm 69 verse 9 zeal for your house 
has consumed me. David was zealous for the house of God, but Jesus was perfectly and righteously zealous and passionate for God's house. Jesus was passionate that God would receive the worship that he is worthy of. He's saying, my father is in heaven and he's worthy to receive worship. And instead of worshipping him, you're selling things. And so he's passionate, he's zealous for God's house. And he's also passionate that people are not hindered from coming to God. Where they were selling these things and making this money, this was to be the court where the Gentiles could worship God. It was supposed to be a place where others could come and worship God. And they're selling and and stopping people coming to a place of worship. So Jesus loves his Father in heaven and he wants him to receive worship. So he's zealous for God's house. And he loves people. And he wants people to be able to come and experience the love and presence and power of God. And so he's righteously zealous for that. And so Psalm 69 verse 9 is really about Jesus's zeal for God's house. Yes, it's about David's zeal, but it's actually about Jesus's zeal. He loves God and God's people. He loves his father and he loves the house of God. He loves God's people. The second verse that's quoted in John's gospel is Psalm 69 verse 4, which says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, he says to his disciples, people in this world are going to hate you. Do you know how I know they're going to hate you? Because they have hated me. And when he says that, he quotes Psalm 69 verse 4 and and says the hatred that he has received is a fulfillment of this verse. I have been hated, he says, without cause. So do you see what this, what this is unpacking for us? Just as David was zealous for the house of God, so Jesus was zealous for the house of God. Just as David was hated because of his zeal, so Jesus was also hated without cause. The, David is a pattern to point us to Christ. One final verse which is quoted in John's Gospel. Psalm 69 verse 21 says... For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And I want to read to you from John chapter 19. If you've got a Bible, turn there. If not, it's okay because it will be on the screen. John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. This is the moment Jesus dies on the cross. What psalm are you going to quote as Jesus dies on the cross? Well, the answer is Psalm 69. After this. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As Jesus Christ hangs on the tree hangs on the cross, as he suffers for doing good, as he's hated without cause, as he's crucified because he dared to stand up to the Pharisees and religious leaders because he was zealous for the house of the Lord, as Christ saves us from our sin by dying in our place, as he declares it is finished, For Christ had fulfilled his mission, dealt sin a crushing blow by his death on the cross. What does Christ do? He drinks sour wine in fulfilment of Psalm 69 verse 21. The suffering that David went through as he wrote this psalm was a picture of the ultimate suffering that our saviour would go through on the cross.
And so we see in Psalm 69, David serves as an example to us. He's authentically emotional. He's full of faith, and yet he still enters into praise and worship. In this psalm, we're reminded prophetically that rejecting God and rejecting God's anointed one will bring judgment upon all who make that decision. But more than anything in Psalm 69, we're presented with a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's righteously zealous for the house of God. He's passionate about us, God's people. Isn't that exciting? He's righteously zealous and passionate for God's house. He loves his father and he loves us and he longs for us not to be hindered coming to worship him. Christ is the one who is truly hated without cause, perfectly righteous in everything that he did and yet treated like a criminal. And he's the one who truly suffers on the cross, given sour wine to drink as he thirsts before saying it is finished and dying giving up his spirit so that we might live. Oh, what a wonderful saviour we have. We have the Bible so glorious, isn't it? A thousand years before Christ was even born, this picture was painted of the saviour who was to come. Oh, but what a saviour. What a saviour we have. I invite you to stand and I want to pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. The Holy Spirit in power knitted it all together so wonderfully and gloriously. And I thank you for the things that you have taught us from Psalm 69. Make us authentic people who express our emotions to you. Make us people full of faith and trust in you, for you are steadfast in love. And your saving faithfulness is so, so good. And may we always come back to a place of worship, Lord God. I pray we would flee sin, repent of sin, knowing that wrath comes upon those who do not receive mercy by believing in Jesus Christ. But most of all, we want to glorify our Saviour Jesus who suffered in our place that we might live. Jesus, we give you all the glory and all the praise this morning. We thank you for what you, we, what you did and we thank you for your awesome, awesome love. We love you so much, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.